the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show, seven minutes after four o'clock. One of these days, I'm going to shock you and I'm going to say 12 minutes after four o'clock. We're just going to delay it so that I don't say the same thing every time we open the show. Let's work on that, James. We're going to start at 12 after just so I can say something different as far as the time goes. That said, James Blend is engineering and producing today's program. Today we're going to talk with Ella Pritchard. She is the author of Reclaiming Joy, a primer for widows. In it, she um, traces her own story of having lost her husband and trying to restore her joy. And I think you'll find great comfort, wisdom, and direction from her account. Again, Reclaiming Joy, a primer for widows. I say it either way, primer, primer. You can decide which you prefer. Uh, Taking a look at some of the day's uh, developing stories, the president has vowed to send as many troops as necessary to prevent a growing Central American migrant caravan from entering the United States. And an explosive device was found at the Westchester, New York home of billionaire George Soros last night, according to reports. Democrats are expected to reopen an investigation on alleged Russian collusion if they retake the House in the midterm elections, observers say. I don't know how you reopen something that's already open, but nonetheless, that's what they're vowing. Investigators announced they are looking for two vehicles of interest in the search for a Wisconsin girl who went missing after her parents were found slain in their home. Authorities are expected to expand the ground search for Jane Kloss uh, today. Well, the lead story today, the president has promised to stop the caravan or um, invasion, as some are referring to it, at the border. In an interview aboard the Air Force One uh, on Monday, the president made clear that he was uh, he has no limits in terms of the number of troops he's willing to send to the border to address the growing migrant caravan, quickly making its way through hot and humid temperatures in Mexico to the U.S. border. The president had previously vowed to send the U.S. military, as opposed to the National Guard, to confront the group, which the United Nations now estimates at about 7,200 members strong. The president told USA Today in an interview that people from the Middle East are among the thousands of migrants in caravans uh, in the caravan, echoing remarks he made on Twitter Monday morning when he complained there were MS-13 gang criminals and unknown Middle Easterners mixed in. Well, he's retracted that or at least um, had a different version earlier today in which he says, we don't know that for certain, but with numbers that great, it's a strong possibility. Well, the president didn't elaborate then. He's since done so. Asked how many troops he was willing to send. The president told the paper simply, as many as necessary. Speaking to reporters outside the White House earlier yesterday, the president slammed several Central American countries that he uh, charged were doing nothing about the caravan and threatened to cut U.S. aid to Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. And an explosive device was found on Monday at the Westchester, New York home of billionaire George Soros. The Wall Street Journal, citing local law enforcement, reported that police received a phone call from the residents about a suspicious package. An employee that works at the home found the package in a mailbox, opened it, revealing what appeared to be an explosive device, according to the Bedford Police Department. The employee then placed the package in a wooded area until authorities arrived. Soros was not home at the time of the incident, according to the New York Times. The bomb squad de- activated the device and the investigation has been turned over to the Joint Terrorism Task Force Division 
of the FBI. Soros, 88, has donated uh, at least $18 million to his charity, the Open Society Foundations, which works to promote democracies in countries around the world, according to the organization's website. Known for his philanthropy and political influence, has uh, focused his efforts as of late on the midterm elections here in the U.S. and has funneled upwards of $15 million to Democrats as they push to regain control of Congress. Whether or not that that fact is related, we don't yet know. Well, Democrats are expected to reopen the investigation into alleged collusion between Russian officials and the Donald Trump 2016 presidential campaign if they regain the House of Representatives majority in next month's midterm, which is less than two weeks away. The Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence was the only House panel to investigate Russian meddling, aside, of course, from the Mueller investigation. This past April, the committee's Republicans said they found no evidence of collusion between the Russian government and the Trump campaign. Democrats said Republicans ignored key facts and important witnesses. However, while some on the left wing have said they wanted to restart parts of the investigation if they win the House, others said there could be a political cost if they overreach. Intelligence Committee ranking member Adam Schiff, a Democrat out of California, and other lawmakers have said they're closely watching special counsel Robert Mueller's Russian investigation, which is difficult to watch because we have no idea, nor do they, what they've actually uncovered thus far. And the Senate's Russia probe to look uh, for gas Perhaps. Uh, that they could fill. Well, two vehicles of interest were announced on uh, Monday in the search for Jane Kloss, a very tragic story. The Wisconsin teenager who went missing on the 15th of this month, the day her parents were found shot uh, to death in their home. Surveillance footage helped the Barron County Sheriff's Office and the FBI determine the make and model of two cars seen in the area of the Kloss home at the time of the fatal shootings. Investigators believe a red or orange Dodge Challenger made between the years 2008 and 2014 might be linked to the incident. Another vehicle, either a black Ford Edge made between 2006 and 2010 or a black Acura um, made between 2004 and 2010 is also of interest. Investigators believe the 13-year-old Kloss is still in danger. The search for her was to expand today with as many as 2,000 volunteers expected to comb the barren Wisconsin area. Please pray for the recovery of Jane Kloss. And on this day in 2008, badgered by lawmakers on the House Oversight Committee, former Federal Reserve Chairman Alan Greenspan denies the nation's economic crisis was his fault, but concedes the meltdown had revealed a flaw in a lifetime of economic thinking and left him in a state of shocked disbelief, but not responsible. And on this day in 1987, the U.S. Senate rejects 58 to 42, the Supreme Court nomination of Robert H. Bork. Hence the um, the verb borked was born. Well, the president's um, vowed that there would be no limit to troops to stop the growing number of migrants making their way toward the U.S. border. There's a great deal of territory, a lot of ground to cover between here and there. But the president had previously vowed to send the U.S. military, as opposed to the National Guard, to confront the group, which the United Nations now has estimated has grown. Dramatic footage over the weekend showed the caravan, which... Uh, had at least 1,100 miles from, uh, was uh, 1,100 miles from the U.S. border over the weekend, defying the the president's warning and smashing a border fence as migrants flooded into Mexico despite the presence of riot police. And we talked a little bit about how that uh, happened yesterday. Well, from the Wall Street Journal, they write that waves of humanity marching in lockstep don't materialize spontaneously, and neither has this caravan. This march is organized and not necessarily for the benefit of the migrants. Mr. Trump has good reason to turn it back. And Jim Garrity writes, has anyone in the caravan explained why they are marching uh, with the Honduran flag? Just an open question. Will that caravan continuing to move in this direction? Now, we're going to take a break in uh, just a moment. When we return, we're going to talk about the possible 
little October surprise, or rather October surprises, things that could rock the midterm elections between now and then. And again, we're less than two weeks away. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 18 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, we'll talk with Ella Pritchard. She's the author of Reclaiming Joy, a primer, a primer for widows. That's uh, in our next segment. Well, we're less than two weeks away from the midterm elections, and then we'll have that uh, 15, 20-minute reprieve before the 2020 presidential election uh, campaigning begins. But from the growing caravan of migrants making their way toward America's southern uh, border to a pledge of new tax cuts for middle-income Americans the president has now made, the midterm season could yet hold a few twists and turns between now and, well, Election Day. Now, most of us in Oregon and Washington, you've uh, already or will soon get your um, ballots in the mail. So for us, the election season has already begun. Many have already cast their ballots. I know that I, uh, the fact that I'm leaving early, I like to vote generally on election day, but the fact that I'm leaving the country, I uh, cast my ballot, mailed it yesterday, and it was such a delight for me to be able to vote yes on the measure that would end state funding of abortion. I worked on that campaign decades ago when it first the question was first put to Oregonians. It failed. Um, I'm praying and hoping that this time around it will succeed. But it was a great joy to be able to, um, to cast that uh, vote in favor um, of that measure and then to pass along all the other decisions that were made and put them in the mail. But a lot can happen between now and then. That's one reason some people like to hold off on voting to see what uh, what happens. Anyway, the November 6th elections are widely seen as a referendum on the president, the administration and Republican policies pushed in the past two years. And that generally is the case. So no big surprises there. Democrats, the other party, hopes to take control of the House and the Senate where Republicans hold a narrow lead. Historically, that's fairly common that the party that's out of power is um, successful in regaining power during the midterm elections. But nonetheless, a series of developments could uh, tilt the final outcome, especially for those who vote on Election Day. As I mentioned, the the migrants that are heading to the U.S. border seeking asylum, my understanding is it's going to take probably several weeks before they arrive here, given the fact that they're on foot. Tensions with multiple foreign nations seem ready to broil over. And uh, several um, special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election is nearly um, uh, ready, uh, well, nearing a close, we think. We don't actually know. But some things to consider, special counsel Mueller's investigation uh, involving the, um, uh, the 2016 election. He's reportedly close to delivering his core findings. This is likely to happen after the midterms. A pair of anonymous U.S. officials told Bloomberg that Mueller is getting ready to answer the two questions on everyone's mind, whether Trump actually obstructed justice and if he or his campaign colluded with Russia to win the White House. But while the final product isn't expected until after the elections, any hints about the finding or additional charges could invigorate Democrats or even rally Republicans convinced the probe is a witch hunt. So it could go either way. Meanwhile, if uh, Democrats take to the House, uh, take the House of Representatives in November, uh, party leaders are expected to reopen the probe into alleged collusion between Russia and uh, the uh, Trump campaign, regardless of what the Mueller investigation might reveal. Uh, so far, his team has secured uh, six guilty pleas and verdicts, including from four former uh, Trump uh, campaign advisors, one jury conviction. He has pending indictments against more than two dozen others and three Russian companies. Unfortunately, none of them are actually related to the uh, uh, the call to which this uh, panel was um, uh, was seated. So while there have been convictions, they're not related to the core 
um, ideas. And then I mentioned the, of course, the caravan that's making its way toward the, the U.S. border. Thousands of migrants continue their trek th- uh, through Mexico toward the U.S. border. The president has threatened to call the military to reinforce and slash the um, aid to El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras. The confrontation could escalate in the days ahead. Whether or not they arrive at the border um, before or after midterm elections, we don't know. The president has made uh, illegal immigration a rallying cry for the Republican base throughout the midterm elections, and thousands of Central Americans traveling toward the border have become a highly visible example. Every time you see a caravan of people illegally coming, the president uh, said, or attempting to come into our country illegally, think of and blame the Democrats. He has uh, made his rallying cry. And while Trump's continued focus on the caravan, particularly on social media, could rouse Republican voters, it could also do the opposite, boosting turnout among Democrats. So this could be a pivotal issue for the midterms. And then what about the new Trump tax cuts, the tax cuts, rather, ahead of the uh, midterm elections? The president uh, promised a new round of tax cuts for middle income people uh, with Congress not in session until after the elections. He's conceded there wouldn't be a vote until the November 6th election are over, but the plan is clearly aimed at middle-class voters. And the president said on Monday that he's looking at a 10% cut with plans to unveil a new measure within the next two weeks. And the president said the package will be a major tax cut for middle-income people, and unlike the 2017 tax over- overhaul, rather, won't focus on businesses. He said his administration, House Speaker Paul Ryan and Representative Kevin Brady, the Republican chair of the House Ways and Means Committee, are all working on it. Then there's impeachment talk. Uh, that has heated up as the uh, midterm elections have approached. The possibility that Democrats, if they gain control of the House after the election, would give them an opportunity to launch impeachment proceedings. And there have been increasing whispers about that scenario, although the the plan is let's not talk about it out loud until after um, the the majority is won. Still, in several key races, Democrats want to distance themselves from the idea in order not to alienate moderate or conservative voters. Texas Senate candidate Beto um, O'Rourke, who faces incumbent Senator Ted Cruz in a fierce battle, has found a way to dance around the topic. He said while he would vote for impeaching Trump, he's not in favor of actually initiating the proceedings at the moment. So, again, leaving that uh, that door wide open for the possibility that others would do it and he would support it. And then there are foreign uh, tensions that could flare. An escalation of tensions with a foreign nation could also impact the upcoming elections. Um, We've got uh, Russia, Saudi Arabia inconsistent and widely challenged responses to the death of the activist, um, the journalist. Um, Trump's response is pivotal to these issues. What exactly happened to the uh, journalist Jamal Khashoggi, uh, whom the Saudi authorities claim died in a fistfight that has um, evolved into a different answer? In a debate with uh, her GOP challenger, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren said the country needs a stronger response to Saudi Arabia and charged Trump is showing he is not capable. Republican Representative Jeff Dial Uh, said it's uh, imperative to continue to have the relationship with Saudi Arabia, pointing to the many businesses in Massachusetts that do business in the kingdom. So there's a lot to think about in all of that. Vice President Mike Pence uh, has accused China of launching an unprecedented effort to influence the election uh, to unseat Trump, warning the communist nation is responding 
uh, to the president's tough trade policies. Additionally, ties uh, between the United States and China are continuing uh, down a path of acrimony, again, with the um, tariffs in place and so on. Uh, The vice president pointed to Trump's uh, tough line on Beijing, particularly his decision to impose those tariffs on goods coming from that country. He said in response, Beijing is using its power to interfere in domestic policies of this country. And of course, anything could erupt at any time in any area. Uh, should events unfold before the midterm elections less than two weeks away. But these are a few things to uh, to consider and to uh, to look at in that whole process. Well, the former owners of an Oregon bakery ordered to pay $135,000 in damages, you know who I'm referring to, uh, for declining to make a cake for a same-sex wedding are appealing their case to the U.S. Supreme Court. Lawyers for Aaron and Melissa Klein filed a petition uh, on Monday asking the Supreme Court to reverse an earlier decision handed down by the state that forced them to shut down their family bakery. Freedom of speech, Kelly Shackelford, president and CEO of First Liberty, a nonprofit legal organization that represents the Kleins. Freedom of speech has always included the freedom not to speak the government's message. This case can clarify whether speech is truly free if the uh, government uh, has mandated it. An administrative judge for the Oregon Bureau of Labor and Industries ruled in July of 2015 that the clients had discriminated against a lesbian couple on the basis of their sexual orientation. The judge ordered the clients to pay the $135,000 for physical, emotional, and mental damages. The clients appealed that ruling to the Oregon Court of Appeals in April of 2016, and that court upheld the state agency's decision. Under Oregon law, it's illegal for businesses to refuse service based on a customer's orientation, as well as race, gender, and other characteristics. The Kleins maintain that they did not discriminate, but only declined to make the cake because of their religious beliefs about marriage. Designing and baking a custom cake for the same-sex wedding, they said, would violate their Christian faith. Baking for them as individuals is one thing. Baking for a ceremony uh, celebrating something they cannot embrace was another. In June, the Supreme Court ruled on a similar case in favor of Jack Phillips, owner of Masterpiece Cake Shop outside of Denver, Colorado. In that case, Masterpiece versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission, the court ruled that government officials cannot be hostile to the free exercise of religious beliefs. But the high court did not rule specifically on the underlying question of the case, whether government can compel citizens to create messages that violate their deeply held religious beliefs. The Klein's petition asked the Supreme Court to address the unanswered question left over from the Masterpiece Cake Shop case. Well, in June, the Kleins wrote a piece for the Daily Signal explaining what the Masterpiece Cake Shop ruling means for their case. They wrote that they were thrilled for their friend because, like Phillips, we know what it's like to be treated unfairly by a state agency and mocked, threatened, and abused by critics. They added, at the same time, we wonder what the future holds for our case, our lost business, and our family. Ours may be, as Justice Anthony Kennedy wrote, the case that allows further elaboration in the courts, and we are encouraged to know that seven justices of the Supreme Court agree that a state's hostility to the religious beliefs of its citizens will not be tolerated under the First Amendment. Well, Kennedy was known on the Supreme Court as being a crucial swing vote. Since the court's ruling on the Masterpiece case, Kennedy has retired, and this month was succeeded by Justice Brett Kavanaugh, a conservative. Kavanaugh's addition to the court has led some to theorize that if the court were to take the client's case or a similar one, the decision could fall in their favor. The $135,000 the clients were ordered to pay sits in escrow pending the final outcome of the case. The couple's attorney said they are hopeful that the high court will respond to their petition within the next three months. And uh, keep in mind that the Supreme Court can can decide to um, hear the case. They can decide to decline hearing the case. They can remand it back to the court 
for a uh, review. <clears throat> so we'll follow that story as it develops. But what we do know at this point is that the Kleins have called upon the Supreme Court asking them to resolve the core issue of their case and really what remains the core issue in the Masterpiece uh, Cake decision as well. 30 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. <laughs> you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 34 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, like many of the nearly 1 million women whose husbands die each year, my next guest, Ella Wald Pritchard, was unprepared for widowhood. I mean, how do you prepare for that? As she muddled through the cloud of grief that engulfed her after her husband Lev's death, she learned that there's no one way to do widowhood. She could write her own script, part memoir, part survival guide. Her new book, Reclaiming Joy, a Primer for Widows, offers plenty of practical advice and spiritual encouragement for women seeking the strength to rebuild their lives. Fear and anxiety consumed her as she confronted the enormity of the responsibilities left to her, including becoming CEO of the family oil business. She found strength reading scripture, especially Paul's letter to the Philippians, uh, which provides a four-part framework for her book, with each chapter focusing on a different trait needed to move from grief to joy. And yes, that is a journey that can be made. Uh, she acknowledges that every widow's situation is different. She encourages readers to set their own path, yet some aspects of widowhood are universal, including changing family dynamics, financial concerns, loneliness, and others. Even the holidays can be sinkholes. And she hopes her account will inspire and comfort others who take that journey that no one really wants to take. Well, Ella Wall Pritchard is the president of Pritchard Oil Company. She was married to her husband for 46 years until his death in 2009. And while learning the business and settling the estate in the midst of the Great Recession, she poured out her grief and anxiety on Twitter and Facebook, which were the seeds of her book, Reclaiming Joy. A mother and grandmother, she's a frequent speaker on the subject of widowhood and has encouraged and supported widows all around the country. She's involved in her community, her church, many other nonprofit organizations, and she blogs at EllaWallPritchard.com, where other resources on widowhood can be found. Again, she joins us today to talk about her latest book, Reclaiming Joy, a primer for widows. Ella Wall Pritchard, thank you so much for joining us. I'm so glad to be here tonight. I wish, <clears throat> I wish you and I were talking about a different subject. It is a difficult one, and I think for those of us who perhaps have uh, lived through a challenging season with a husband who's been ill and thought about the prospect of widowhood, this is a, a subject that we really dread uh, having to confront face to face. Tell us a little bit about your husband and your, your marriage. I met my husband on a blind day in Corpus Christi. I had come here after my junior year in college for a reporting internship at the local newspaper. He was here temporarily working in the family business. The person who had run the office had had a heart attack. And someone at the newspaper felt really sorry for me because I didn't know anyone in Corpus Christi. And said, I know someone who's just coming into town after being in Europe, and let's go on a blind date. Well, we went on that blind date and saw each other every night for the next five weeks. And I went back to college, and he came up on weekends, and we got married five months later. And I've been here ever since. <laughs> now, was your, your husband's death, was it uh, unexpected? Were you anticipating that he would uh, pass away soon? How did your widowhood come to you? His health was certainly declining the last six or seven years of his life. He had congestive heart failure. And so a doctor had told me that people with his stage of heart disease 
probably had less than three years to live. And so I knew that. And then he was in the hospital for two months in January and February of 2009. I had a code blue one night. And at that point, I thought we were heading for the end. Came home. We had a good month. We saw friends. He bought a new car. Um, so the actu- it was a surprise, actually, because the prognosis when he was dismissed from the hospital was good. But, you know, in the long term, it wasn't a surprise. Only the timing was a surprise. Yeah. yeah. You um, weren't just widowed, but you were left with a great deal of responsibility to, to carry on during this season uh, of grief. You begin your book with a letter to my fellow widows. What did you need to say to them right in the outset of the book that might help them to, to journey through this process of widowhood and through the book? I wanted to accomplish several things in the letter. I wrote that letter actually when I first did my outline and first note, or I ever did a draft. So in a way, it represents my goals for the book. But I, I did come out okay. It took far longer than I could have imagined. And but I wanted to offer encouragement. I also wanted to assure new widows that this feeling that we're going crazy is normal. I think we all think there's something wrong with us. And so it's in talking to one another and in the reading of memoirs of grief that we learn that what seems unique to us is in fact normal. People everywhere talk about the fog of grief, the waves Mm -hmm. of grief. Um, In a similar word are used to describe it by so many people who are unconnected to each other. So there's more universality to it than we we realize we're in the middle of it. And I I wrote the book because I couldn't find a book that helped when my husband died. I turned Philippians, as I had before in times of depression, encouragement, and grief. And it was the comfort I found. So I wanted to share that, but I thought it was very important since this is a letter out of Christian scripture, and my journey is a journey of faith in the Christian tradition, that I wasn't trying to write a religious book that adhered to one creed or one way to do it, that there are universal practical truths found in Paul's letter that are as true today as they were 2,000 years ago. And the other thing, we got so much advice, that's why it ended up a memoir. I didn't intend to write a memoir, but I couldn't write in second person because widows are given so much advice. Everybody's telling you, mm. you know, when to move on and it's time to quit crying all the time and so on and so forth. And widows really get tired of it all. And so to acknowledge the uniqueness of each widow's grief, acknowledge that there's no right or wrong way to do this, but we can find a path out. We look for it. In your... F- Oh, go ahead. Oh, so even the way I signed it, wishing you grace, peace, and joy, those are three key elements in Paul's letter. And what I have come to believe are necessary ingredients in moving through this fog to reclaim joy. You um, mentioned that the, Paul's uh, letter to the Philippians inspired the, the sections of the book, um, how that love overcomes fear, that unity strengthens relationships, maturity brings wisdom, peace leads to joy. Where did you begin as you opened the scriptures uh, to walk through this uh, this challenging journey, while at the same time managing other affairs, uh, like becoming the CEO of the family oil business. Um, how did you apply the scriptures as you walked through uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians um, that told you to take time to mourn, to accept invitations, and just to how to think through this process? Well, and not all of it came explicitly from the scripture. I was so familiar with Philippians, I actually reached for my Bible and read Philippians in those early morning hours immediately after his death before I started calling people. Uh, so I t- 
tone deaf from the beginning, and as much of it I would be able to quote by heart. Um, so some of it, you know, was deeply ingrained within me. I would say that the prayer that I prayed so constantly gives me wisdom and discernment and helped me back to family unit is in many ways summary of Philippians. As Paul stresses the importance of having discernment, of having good judgment, of, of being wise, and he talks about the importance of unity and living life in harmony and community, which I think in the situation of grief refers primarily to our family. Uh, we're all in this together, and it's a very fragile period for everyone, and it needs to be handled carefully and, and lovingly. And so that came directly from Philippians. I dealt with the family business before I spent uh, a serious, serious time, uh, several hours every day meditating on just a few little verses. I didn't decide to, I didn't start considering writing a book. I didn't have an idea of writing a book until four years out, and I knew that was going to be a dramatic change for me. So I spent nine months thinking about whether I was willing to spend, give up the time, whether I was willing to spend that time in solitude, whether I was willing to remember what I had tried so hard to forget. And then I, that, I always knew it would be about Philippians. That's the only way I could ever tell the story of the journey. I didn't know it would be a memoir, but I knew it somehow or another it would be to help other widows walk through Philippians. And so one of the reviewers of my book said I marinated in Philippians, and I think that's funny. But it actually pretty well describes how I spent May 2014. So unlike a lot of memoirs, which are, come from the journals of the first year, my memoir comes from looking back after I've sort of gotten over the worst hurdle. And I can see where God was at work, even when I didn't know at the time that he was at work. And I could look back and see how pieces had fit together and what I had learned is to identify some of the mistakes I had made in, in that journey. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. Again, we're talking this afternoon with my guest, Ella Wall Pritchard. Her book is titled Reclaiming Joy, a Primer for Widows. Back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 49 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, talking with Ella Wall Pritchard. Her book is titled Reclaiming Joy, a Primer for Widows. Let me ask you, one of the things I think um, widows uh, confront first is the, the notion of fear. In the first section of your book, it's titled Love Overcomes Fear. How did you deal with it, and what do you recommend for others who are in that uh, that part of the grieving process where fear can seem overwhelming. I saw my doctor about it because I, I had what emergency room call visit where I, I couldn't swallow. So it, it was a very terrifying experience for me. And that probably increases the fear of a little when you're living alone and if you have a, something go wrong physically and you've got to call 911. Um, you don't, and no one's there. That, that's one of the fears. There are a million fears, and just being alone, the responsibility of finances, which most of us do not consider ourselves prepared to handle, no matter the size of, of the estate or what we have to manage. It's a terrifying thing. Our own mortality, uh, just so many things to fear. It's interesting. The fear, of course, breeds anxiety, which is um, which can be a miserable way to live. And there's just an article out today. There's a new book that uh, that anxiety is the sixth uh, stage of uh, grief, the unrecognized stage of grief. So 
Anxiety is beginning to get more recognition as one of those things we're all going to deal with. And I think probably meditation helps a lot. There's growing an interest in mindfulness, which really was not a term that was being used when I was going through it or when I was writing my book, but I think it's worth exploring for some being in the small group, grief support groups, sharing with one another helps allay the fear. Um, I think the grief counselor, the grief expert that I spoke with, uh, she refused to take a stand on what works best. It was whatever you're doing, if you feel better, keep doing it. If it makes you feel worse, quit doing it and try something else. So I think it's by trial and error that we find out how to stay calm. simple thing for me was to realize that I did not need to be around stressful people or angry people. Or, that negative words and thoughts and actions affected me way more as a single as they had had as half of a couple. And so I really learned to recognize and avoid, when possible, uh, the stress producers. And I learned to take some time. If I was forced into a situation that I knew was going to be stressful, I tried to take some time alone, take a deep breath, say a prayer, uh, brace myself to deal with it and to try to deal with it calmly uh, because I was not calm at the beginning when those stresses presented themselves. You also write in that section of the book about grace and gratitude, insight, courage, accepts, expectations, rather, joy and unity. In the next section of the book, you write about um, unity and how that strengthens relationships. And you make the point that it was a very important uh, to you to talk with, to hear from others who had been widowed and their wisdom helped you on your journey. Exactly, because um, you know, everyone asks, when they see you, they say, how are you? But what they want you to say is, I'm fine. They really don't want you to tell them that you're not fine. And if you do, they don't know what to say next. With what I call the sisterhood, you can be honest because they've been there, they know, they can tell you how they handled it, and importantly, they just listen. But you need people around you. The isolation's a killer. Were there things that people said and did who had not had that experience um, that were most unhelpful that you would suggest others of us who want to be a genuine friend and comfort to someone who is experiencing widowhood should avoid? I think one of the things, and the church is guilty of this, is... Oh, that we're supposed to be celebrating, that we're supposed to be rejoicing because our loved one is in heaven. I sometimes speak of it as sarcastically. I'm supposed to be happy because he's up there singing in the angel choir. Well, no, I'm not happy about that. I want him right here. And um, to tell people they shouldn't grieve, to suggest even indirectly that they must not have enough faith or they're not strong enough, that they're grieving, that there's something wrong with grieving, uh, it's a terrible thing to do to people. Um, just even to tell people when they're grieving, oh, you'll be fine, you'll get over it, um, that's not helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, young widows, I just talked to another one today with the, the assurance that, oh, you're young enough, you'll find someone else you'll remarry. Oh, you know, my. <laughs> you know, uh, people say the same thing when a child dies. You're young enough to have another child. Um, you know, loved ones are unique and they are yeah. not replaceable. We may find love again, but that does not replace the 
person we've lost. And in fact, I think some people, that's the mistake they made. They're so desperate in the aloneness and the emptiness that the reaction is on someone else to fill the loneliness as soon as possible rather than figuring out what to do not to be alone all the time. Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes it works, but a lot of times it does not work out when people jump into a new relationship out of grief and loneliness. You also have a third section of your book, Maturity Brings Wisdom. Now, maturity is a big word. Um, Explain what you mean by that and some of the elements that uh, result in wisdom on this journey. Well, I think I quote in the book a a very wise uh, religion professor who said, um, you can't have wisdom without gray hair. And that might be a, a little bit facetious, but what he's really saying is that wisdom is a combination of knowledge and discernment. And that discernment comes from experience. You can't, a 22-year-old can't possibly have oh, the wisdom of a 50-year-old on things that require life experience. And I think when we, as we get older and we've seen more, we we are more able to extend grace to others. Uh, Paul uses the word uh, maturity much as Jesus did, that um, God created us to be mature, to function. And so when we're mature, it's like a mature fine wine. We're at our peak. We are what we were created to be. Uh, Paul also says, and I think it is in chapter 3 of Philippians from which this section is taken, that um, if there's an argument uh, look at the most mature people in the group uh, for their wisdom. Uh, you know, chances are that their maturity will give them the right answer. You know, that's certainly not always true. Uh, there are a lot of people who don't get wisdom along with the gray hair. And, of course, some of us women don't get gray hair forever. So, uh, mm-hmm. but, uh, but I'm talking about that maturity that you're, you're realistic, you're, but you're not fretting, and you're open to new experiences. Uh, I think we recognize it when we see it. Finally, your sec- your last segment of the book is about peace and how that leads to joy. Can we end our conversation with your telling us a little bit about the peace and the joy that can be experienced even when one has been widowed, uh, having gone through the grieving process? Give our listeners some hope. Well, I think the peace comes. We have to be peace at peace with ourselves and at peace with God. Um, have peace with other people and with our circumstances. So really, I think that's getting to the place where we accept our circumstances. It's that serenity prayer um, of acceptance and and having the serenity to accept what we cannot change. It was hard for me to acknowledge that I couldn't change things. It's really the only thing I could change was myself and my response. And I think that's essential for for having mental and emotional and spiritual peace. um, Some people are angry with God. I never was, but many people are. So to get past that anger and to be at peace with something we don't understand, that there's no answer to our question why. Um, And when you have that peace, then you begin to to recognize the joy around you. Um, I felt like I had had no joy for four years of my life, and that's what made me decide to write a book. I suddenly thought, oh my goodness, I'm happy. This is is amazing. amazing. I need to write about this. But I look back and I realize that there were moments of joy every day. You know, it could have mm-hmm. been a call from one of the children, a hug from a grandchild, um, a visit from a friend, a note, um, just seeing the flowers burst into bloom in the spring. Uh, and I was so much in the grief that I didn't notice the joy. And I emphasize, you know, taking time every day to identify the things you're thankful for or the moments that give you joy because... When we do that, then we sort of start looking for them 
and we note them. And that helps us remember them and to realize that the days are not as gray as we think they are. But every minute's not gray, and that's what leads to joy. The book, again, is titled Reclaiming Joy, A Primer for Widows. Ella Wall Pritchard, thank you so much for talking with us today. Appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. I would just advise those who are followers of Christ, if you are engaged in meditation or mindfulness, which is kind of a trendy thing right now, that what your mind dwells on is important. And in the context of your Christian faith, we need to be very protective about what we allow ourselves to do. So if you're meditating, meditate on the scriptures, on the goodness of God and his character. And under the heading of mindfulness, again, be careful how... Uh, you engage in uh, your thought life. Okay, we've got uh, news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Eight minutes after five o'clock, you're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is engineering and producing today's program. Well, it's not clear uh, as of uh, this moment if the United States is going to formally leave the uh, intermediate range, uh, let's see, the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, or INF. It was signed in 1987 by President Ronald Reagan, Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev. The United States certainly has a couple of solid reasons to get out, and the president has announced that that's precisely what he intends to do. One would assume this is a matter of leverage. We've seen it in other areas. The first is that the Russians are violating the Missile Pact and have been for some time. The INF Treaty restricts the United States and Soviet Union, now Russia, from producing or testing ground-launched conventional and nuclear crews and ballistic missiles and associated uh, launchers with a range of 500 to 5,500 kilometers. Well, given the Cold War tensions at the time between the U.S. and NATO on the other on the one side and the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact on the other, this arms control treaty was considered a significant step, and it was, toward reducing the threat of war in Europe. Well, at the time, it was a noteworthy arms control agreement. It eliminated an entire class of missiles, land-based, short- and intermediate-range ballistic and conventional missiles, such as the American Pershing II and Soviet SS-20 missiles. Well, that um, steady state of affairs began to markedly change for the worse in 2008, when concerns started to surface that Moscow had violated the treaty by developing a new missile system. Well, that troubling development came to an end of the Bush uh, administration and carried over into the Obama White House. And while the Obama administration administration attempted to reset you recall the button and Hillary Clinton relations with Russia and conclude another arms control agreement with Moscow, which came to be the uh, 2010 New Start Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty. Concerns about the INF Treaty weren't forcefully acted upon. Well, that changed slightly in 2014 when the Obama State Department finally called out Russia for its ongoing violation of the INF Treaty after reports that it had uh, tested a land-based cruise missile or an SSC-8. Well, unfortunately, Washington's accusatory rhetoric at the time had no effect on Moscow's course of action on the arms control agreement. No surprise there. Indeed, by last year, the Russians had reportedly deployed at least one operational uh, SSC-8 military unit. Well, the other problem with the INF Treaty, beyond Russia's violation of it, which is a pretty big problem, is China. Beijing isn't part of the U.S.-Russia INF Treaty and therefore isn't constrained by any of the arms control restrictions that were set forth on that um, intermediate-range missile agreement. 
Well, as such, China has developed and deployed a significant conventional and nuclear ballistic and cruise missile arsenal as part of its rising superpower status in the international system and its efforts to assert its interests in the Pacific region and beyond. Well, today, China has the world's second largest military budget, and they're involved in a significant buildup of the military, which in some cases threatens important American interests in the Pacific. For instance, it claims sovereignty over uh, much of the... uh, South China Sea. Well, the senior U.S. military commander asserted last year that 95% of China's land-based missiles, which without question add a potent punch to their military might, would be restricted under a similar treaty if the United States had one with China, an agreement that Moscow and Washington are currently bound to uphold. Well, as challenges arise in the Pacific involving China and potentially North Korea, the INF Treaty prevents the United States from being able to freely develop and deploy our military capabilities to the fullest extent possible possible in support of our national security interests. Now, it would be both risky and unsound for the United States to ignore concerns over Russia's violations of that treaty, as well as China and its growing missile arsenal, which threatens U.S. forces and interests in Asia. So as this is um, uh, the case, the Trump administration hasn't formally provided notice that it is, in fact, leaving the INF Treaty. The National Security Advisor John Bolton's visit to Moscow this week likely involves serious discussions with his Russian counterpart on the future of that treaty. Now, Beijing has expressed its view, not surprisingly, that Washington shouldn't leave the treaty. After all, it's in China's best interest to keep the United States handcuffed. Uh, China is also very unlikely to sign on to an existing treaty or some sort of negotiated expansion of the treaty, as doing so would diminish its missile muscle, so to speak. Well, the Russians could certainly come back into compliance with the treaty to our satisfaction, but if they decide to continue to violate it, which seeming uh, seems pretty likely at this point, there are a number of very good reasons for the United States to drop the treaty for its own interest's sake and uh, as a means of confronting uh, Russia's unwillingness to live up to the agreement that it entered into. Lewis uh, Morris, on the very subject, wrote this. Russia immediately responded uh, to this uh, this challenge. Um, uh, the, the Deputy Foreign Minister Sergei Ryabkov uh, said leaving the treaty Treaty would be a very dangerous step, referring to the United States um, walking away. President Vladimir Putin added, our response would be immediate. I would like to repeat this warning, immediate and reciprocal. And what that means, we don't know, but it sounds ominous. The U.S. first accused Russia of cheating on the agreement back in 2014 with the Obama administration. They noted in annual reports that Russia was developing prohibited weapons. Russia routinely denied the charges, claiming that its super powerful, awesome military has plenty of air and sea-based weapons to make up for the lack of land-based cruise missiles. Russia has never been trustworthy in this regard, either with its stated intentions or its capabilities, preferring to use the power of mystery to keep its opponents off balance. But last year's identification of a cruise missile deployed deployed rather in Russia called the SSC-8 that could threaten NATO in the Baltics proves Russia is up to its old tricks. And so apparently is the American left, which naturally claim that pulling out of the uh, the treaty was a bad idea and could spark a new arms race. This view was echoed by many allies in Europe. German Foreign Minister Heiko Maas said Trump's announcement was regrettable and called the INF Treaty an important pillar of our European security architecture for 30 years. And the European Commission huffed in a statement, the world doesn't need new arms race that would benefit no one and on the contrary would bring even more hostility. Now, this is without acknowledging the fact that Russia has already violated the treaty and that um, in the Pacific, China poses a real threat to the United States national security. Again, Lewis um, Morris writing on 
the the fact that we need to aim for a better nuclear deal with Russia, something to keep your eyes open for and ears open for as well. Fifteen minutes after five, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. 49, 49 minutes, 19 minutes, 19 minutes after five o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell suggested that uh, Republicans would take another stab at repealing the Affordable Care Act after the midterm, saying in an interview that we're not satisfied with the way Obamacare is working. Well, there's an understatement, having been swept into power on the promise that they would do just that. Well, McConnell, who in the past two years has overseen the appointment of a record-setting number of federal judges and justices and the passage of a broad tax reform bill, acknowledged that Republicans' failed effort to repeal Obamacare in 2017 remained a major disappointment uh, of his tenure. If we had the votes to completely start over, we'd do it, McConnell said, speaking to Reuters. But that depends on what happens in a couple of weeks. Hint, hint. Uh, Republicans hold a narrow 51-49 majority in the Senate. And recent uh, polling shows the GOP gaining momentum in several key races as it looks to expand its majority there. However, House races are tougher ground for Republicans this year. And any effort to repeal Obamacare would again need the support of a majority in that chamber um, as well. Obamacare has emerged as a major issue in several swing state races. In Missouri, for example, Fox News polling showed that incumbent Democratic Senator Claire McCaskill and Republican challenger Josh Hawley are neck and neck, and health care could ultimately decide the winner. In fact, that's the case in many states, uh, and that has become a major issue, particularly for uh, Democrats. Josh Hawley decided to use your taxpayer dollars to file a lawsuit that would take away important prescription uh, drug coverage for seniors through Medicare and end all of the consumer protections under the ACA, including protections for Missourians with pre-existing conditions such as asthma, high blood pressure, cancer, and diabetes. That's a quote from McCaskill uh, writing in an op-ed earlier this year referring to a lawsuit Holly signed on to that would legally invalidate Obamacare. Well, even Republicans who have said that they want to get rid of Obama's uh, health care plan uh, have suggested that they want to find a way to keep its ban on insurers denying coverage based on pre-existing conditions. There's been broad agreement on that point from the beginning. Democrats have hammered as a fundamental inconsistency adopted for naked political convenience. Um, they, the Republicans go on to say, well, entitlements are the long-term drivers of debt, McConnell uh, went on to say, uh, speaking to uh, Reuters and tweeting earlier in the day, Senate Majority Leader uh, Chuck Schumer sought to use McConnell's remarks to rally the Democratic base with just uh, weeks before the uh, midterms. Uh, if Republicans retain the Senate, they will do everything they can to take away families' health care and raise their costs. Humor said in a statement, Americans should take Senator McConnell at his word. It's interesting to me how politicians... Uh, And I'm not just referring to Chuck Schumer on one side of the political uh, ledger, but on both sides, how they uh, can interpret, reinterpret and misinterpret votes and positions that have been held without without giving the context of. And this is the nature of political campaigns of a decision or a vote that may have been cast, giving the impression that isn't altogether uh, accurate. Well, Democrats have argued that Republicans um, are whittling away at Obamacare, and that's resulted in escalating premium costs, which, given the structure of Obamacare, would have 
have escalated anyway. But nonetheless, the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office has said Obamacare premiums are projected to increase next year by an average of 15 percent, in part because of the Republican repeal of the law's individual mandate, but only in part. The mandate imposed the tax penalty on Americans who failed to buy health insurance. Well, last summer, the late Senator John McCain dramatically uh, arrived on the Senate floor and gave a, a thumbs down on a vote to repeal Obamacare, decisively killing that measure. He, of course, is no longer a factor in the Senate, and it's not uh, clear whether or not Mr. McConnell will be successful in uh, moving in the direction that uh, Republicans campaigned on in 2016 as one of their primary goals. Again, we'll see in less than two weeks. Well, in a combative exchange at a hearing Friday in Washington, D.C., a federal judge unabashedly accused career State Department officials of lying and signing clearly false affidavits to derail a series of lawsuits seeking information about former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton's private email server and her handling of the 2012 terrorist attacks on the U.S. consulate in Benghazi, Libya. Well, U.S. District Court Judge Royce Lamberth said he was shocked and dumbfounded, his words, when he learned that FBI, uh, that the FBI rather, had granted immunity to former Clinton Chief of Staff Cheryl Mills during the investigation, its investigation into the use of Clinton's server, according to a court transcript of his remarks. I had myself found that Cheryl Mills had committed perjury and lied under oath in a published opinion I had used in a judicial watch case where I found her unworthy of belief. And I was quite shocked to find out she had been given immunity in by the Justice Department in the Hillary Clinton email case, Lamberth said during the Friday hearing. Well, the Department of Justice's Inspector General, Michael Horowitz, noted in a bombshell report in June that it was inconsistent with typical investigative strategy for the FBI to allow Mills to sit in during the agency's interview of Clinton, her client, during the email probe, given that classified information traveled through Mills' personal email account. There are serious potential ramifications when one witness attends another witness's interview, the IG wrote. Well, on Friday, Lambert, the judge, who was appointed to the bench by President Ronald Reagan, said he did not know Mills had been granted immunity until he read the IG report and learned that and that uh, she had accompanied Clinton to her interview. I was actually dumbfounded. Well, the transparency uh, uh, group, uh, Judicial Watch, initially sued the State Department in 2014, seeking information about the response to the Benghazi attack after the government didn't respond to a Freedom of Information Act uh, request. Other parallel lawsuits by Judicial Watch are probing issues like Clinton's server, whose existence was uh, revealed during the course of the litigation. The State Department had immediately uh, removed to dismissed Judicial Watch's lawsuit on a motion for summary judgment, saying in an affidavit that it had uh, conducted a search of all potentially relevant emails in its possession and provided them. The affidavit noted that some more documents and emails could be forthcoming. But Lamberth denied the request to dismiss the lawsuit at that time and said on Friday uh, he was happy he did, charging that State Department officials had intentionally misled him because other key documents, including those in Clinton's email server, had not, in fact, been produced. So while that uh, is an issue from a previous administration some years back, it is still alive and well and trying to get to the bottom of some of those issues. And we learned that an explosive device was found on Monday at the New York home of billionaire George Soros, who was not present at the time. 
Um, Bedford police uh, said the department received a phone call from Soros residents in Westchester County about a suspicious package. An employee that works at the home found the package and opened it. Thankfully, it was not rigged for that, revealing what appeared to be an explosive device, according to a press release from the Bedford Police Department. The employee then placed the package in a wooded area until authorities arrived. The department said that the suspicious package was found in a mailbox. The package contained bomb components. Uh, Police referred uh, uh, but would not confirm that report. Soros was not home at the time of the incident. According to the New York Times, the bomb squad deactivated the device and authorities have said there is no further threat to the area. The investigation has been uh, turned over to the Joint Terrorism Task Force Division of the FBI. Campaigns against Soros emerged in Romania, where the billionaire was accused of financing evil as well as in Macedonia, Serbia and Slovakia and have escalated to some extent since President Donald Trump took office. The wealthy liberal donor started his philanthropic efforts in 1979, but his contributions have not always been welcome. Soros, who made his fortune in hedge funds, has donated heavily to liberal causes and vilified on the right, has been vilified. He is also the subject of many unfounded conspiracy theories. Recently, conservative critics have, without evidence, accused him of secretly financing a caravan of Central American migrants to make their way north toward Mexico and U.S. Now, it's not altogether surprising that that might be the case, given the fact that he uses uh, different groups to do the work that he supports, but there has not yet been a, a definitive link or evidence supporting the notion that he's involved in this particular caravan. Others have accused him of being a Nazi collaborator during World War II when he was a child in Hungary. Activists frequently post the addresses of homes he owns in Westchester County, county rather, north of New York City on social media, sometimes accompanied by ill wishes. The 88-year-old has focused his efforts as of late on the midterm elections here in the U.S. and has funneled upwards of $15 million to Democrats as they push to regain control of Congress. Uh, Soros told the Times in July, that's the New York Times, that for every Trump supporter, there is more than one Trump enemy who will be more intent, more determined. Well, we'll only know that after the midterm elections, I suppose. In October, Soros was linked to a nonprofit group called the Center for Popular Democracy, which rose to prominence for organizing civil disobedience actions and confronting several Republican lawmakers during the contentious hearings that for then Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh. Soros' organization has donated to that uh, group over the years, giving $1.5 million to the nonprofit in 2016 and 2017 through his Open Society Foundations, the records show. He also donated in the past two years another $1.2 million to the nonprofit's sister organization, Center for Popular Democracy Action. So as the investigation moves forward as to um, who might be behind this uh, explosive device, some of those links will certainly be a part of that investigation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Alabama Supreme Court unanimously voted to uphold the value and personhood of unborn babies in the womb. This was last Friday, the 19th, in the case of Jesse uh, Lival Phillips versus State of Alabama. Well, on December 18th of 2015, in the Marshall Circuit Court, Jesse Phillips was uh, convicted of the uh, 2009 intentional killing of his wife, Erica Phillips, and their unborn child, and sentenced to death. According to the case report, Erica Phillips had been approximately eight weeks pregnant when she was murdered. 
Well, in its Friday opinion, and this is uh, from the, uh, the court, which upheld the decisions of the Marshall Circuit Court and the Court of Criminal Appeals, the Alabama Supreme Court wrote, Alabama recognizes an unborn baby as a life worthy of respect and protection. In other words, under the criminal laws of the state of Alabama, the value of life, the life of an unborn child, is no less than the value of the lives of other persons, end quote. Jesse Phillips had appealed his death sentence, arguing that the term person does not include an unborn child and taking issue with the Marshall Circuit Court's application of the Brody Act, uh, which states that the term person, when referring to the victim of a criminal homicide or assault, means a human being, including an unborn child in utero at any stage of development, regardless of viability. The Alabama Supreme Court affirmed the application of the Brody Act. Justice Tom Parker um, concurring uh, specifically uh, with the court's decision, emphasized the rights of the unborn child under Alabama law and argued that Roe versus Wade, the 1973 U.S. Supreme Court decision that legalized abortion na- nationwide, is a legal anomaly and logical fallacy. It's a great way to describe it. He went on to write, in Roe, the United States Supreme Court, without historical or constitutional support, carved out an exception to the rights of unborn children and pro- prohibited states from recognizing an unborn child's inalienable rights to life when the right conflicts with a woman's right to abortion. Justice Parker wrote, the judiciary or judicially created exception to uh, Roe is an aberration to the natural law and the a positive and common law of the states. Well, Justice Parker urged the U.S. Supreme Court to overturn Roe and that sent shivers down the spines of pro-abortion supporters all across the country, given the configuration of the current court. As um, as states like Alabama continue to provide greater and more consistent protection for the dignity of the lives of unborn children, the Roe exception is a stark legal and logical contrast that grows even more alienated from and averse to the legal fabric of America, he went on. Well, according to the report, Jesse Lyville Phillips versus State of Alabama is the first case in the state of Alabama in which one of the capital murder victims is an unborn child. Kudos to the... Alabama Supreme Court. We learned today that former Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, the first woman to sit on the Supreme Court, announced that she has the beginning stages of dementia, probably Alzheimer's. O'Connor says her doctors had diagnosed her with a disorder which has forced her to retire from public life some time ago. Since many people have asked about my current status and activities, I want to be open about these changes and while I am still able, share some personal thoughts. O'Connor wrote in a letter released on Tuesday. The 88-year-old went on to speak about advanced civic learning and engagement, which she vowed to dedicate the rest of her life to since retiring from the Supreme Court 12 years ago. In 2009, she founded iCivics, a group which promotes civil, uh, civic ed- education in schools through free educational online games. I can no longer help lead this cause due to my physical condition, she wrote. It is time for new leadership to make civic learning and civic engagement a reality for all. It is my great hope that our nation will commit to educating our youth about civics and to helping young people understand their crucial role as informed, active citizens in our nation. She said she will be living in Phoenix, Arizona, surrounded by her family and friends. And while the final chapter of my life with dementia may be Uh, Trying, nothing has diminished my gratitude and deep appreciation for the countless blessings in my life. How fortunate I feel to be an American and to have been uh, presented with the remarkable opportunities available to the citizens of our country. O'Connor was nominated by President Ronald Reagan. She took her seat on the court in 1981. She took part in key votes that included 
uh, Gruder versus Bollinger in 2003, allowing state colleges and universities to use affirmative action in their admissions, and the Bush versus Gore case, which uh, stopped the recount in Florida that officially made George W. Bush the president in the year 2000. In 1992, she was the fifth decisive vote in the Planned Parenthood versus Casey decision that affirmed the essential holding of Roe versus Wade. O'Connor announced her retirement in 2005 at age 75, citing her husband, John O'Connor uh, III, who was suffering from Alzheimer's disease at that time as a major part of her decision. He passed away in 2009. The former Supreme Court justice also battled health issues in the past. She underwent surgery for breast cancer in 1988 and in that same year had her appendix removed, according to the New York Times. Since O'Connor's three more women have served on the Supreme Court, Justice Sonia Sotomayor, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Elena Kagan as a young cowgirl from the Arizona desert. I never could have imagined that one day I would become the first woman justice on the U.S. Supreme Court. O'Connor said today, I hope that I have inspired young people about civic engagement and helped pave the pathway for women who may have faced obstacles pursuing their careers. Again, Sandra Day O'Connor, former U.S. Supreme Court justice, says she has the beginning stages of dementia, probably Alzheimer's. Everyone feels isolated sometimes, but with one in five Americans chronically lonely, loneliness may have reached epidemic proportions. In 1988, the journal Science published a landmark study suggesting isolation was as strong a risk factor for morbidity and mortality as sedentary lifestyle, high blood pressure, and smoking or obesity. Well, since then, loneliness has become an increasing public health concern, and health officials are now taking the idea of an epidemic seriously. As the population ages, the burden of social isolation on public health will only increase. Loneliness is one aspect of interrelated conditions such as isolated isolation due to illness, disability or age. The social and language based isolation of being an immigrant, depressed, uh, depression, rather poverty, discrimination and others. This past summer, two surveys made news marking the extent of loneliness in the U.S. and other economically developed countries. Since these and other studies are new, we can anticipate learning more about the interrelationships of factors that contribute to loneliness over time. That shouldn't stop us from addressing the problem now, but may help provide better perspective. The most recent survey from The Economist and the Kaiser Family Foundation finds that 9% of adults in Japan, 22% in America, and 23% in Britain always or often feel lonely or lack companionship. Another study of 20,000 U.S. adults, 18 and older, published by May, uh, published rather in May by Cigna and market research firm Ipsos, reveals nearly half of American adults reported sometimes are always feeling alone, 46%, or left out, 47%. More than one in four Americans, 27%, rarely or never feel uh, that people understand them, and 43% of Americans sometimes or always feel their relationships lacks meaning and they're isolated. One finding stands out, Generation Z, 22 years and younger, scored the lowest on every age group and appears to be more prone to experiencing significant loneliness. Now, 22 years and younger. Generation Z may be the loneliest generation. Now, I see this finding as an opportunity. Now, we who are older tend to imagine that young people have no interest in anything that we might have to offer, but we are now seeing that there is a great need, and perhaps God is providing us an opportunity to make the connection. Now, regarding health impacts, Several recent studies have found that loneliness is a risk factor for decreased resistance to infection, cognitive decline, and conditions such as depression and dementia. A UC uh, San Francisco 2010 study found loneliness to be a 
a predictor of functional decline and death among adults 60 and older. Over six years, lonely subjects were more likely to experience decline in activities of daily living and uh, develop difficulties with upper extremity tasks, uh, experience decline in mobility or climbing, and face increased risk of death. Uh, It appears that without social interaction, we languish and decline, though it's possible that greater longevity coupled with functional decline leads to social isolation. At the other end of the spectrum are challenges faced by young adults. Two 2017 national surveys of adolescents in grades 8 through 12 found among lonely individuals, especially females, depressive symptoms and suicide rates increased between 2010 and 2015. The studies found adolescents who spent more time on social media and devices such as smartphones more likely to report mental health issues, though it's not clear if the self-directed isolation of screen time leads to or results from loneliness. While we need to know more about causes to staunch this epidemic, many studies identify ways to minimize the effects of loneliness. Socializing with friends and family seems obvious. Increasing a meaningful face-to-face interaction decreases loneliness. Those with active social lives report better health, strong social affiliation, such as being part of a church, hobbyist circle, or exercise group, have positive effects as well. Doctors in the United Kingdom make social prescriptions specifying patients take part in structured social activities. Well, it seems a widely held belief that pet ownership mitigates loneliness, although I couldn't confirm it. While evidence supporting this belief is weak, one recent study found that having a pet results in uh, later reporting of feelings of isolation among the elderly. Only people are often less active. And the solution is becoming more active when possible and certainly uh, spending time socializing with others face to face. Now, if you didn't have the opportunity to hear my conversation in the first hour of today's program, I spoke with Ella Pritchard, who is a widow. Her book is titled Reclaiming Joy, a Primer for Widows. In it, she offers some um, some ideas about how she dealt with the loneliness she experienced after the death of her husband. And you may find some uh, some help there. You can listen to that conversation and all of our interviews and uh, programming at the uh, Georgine Rice Show podcast. You can find out more at kpdq.com. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, we learned earlier today that the Trump administration announced it will merge the Jerusalem consulate responsible for relations with the Palestinian Authority into its newly relocated U.S. embassy. Well, the consulate in Jerusalem has functioned essentially as an embassy to the Palestinian Authority and was separate from the operations of the U.S. embassy. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said the consulate closure was aimed at efficiency and wasn't a policy change. He said a newly created Palestinian Affairs Unit will operate out of the old consulate building, conducting uh, reporting, outreach and programming with Palestinians in the West Bank and Jerusalem. Well, in all countries around the world, the United States consulates work under the U.S. Embassy and the consular general's report to the U.S. ambassador of that country. The United States, however, uh, ambassador to Israel, David Friedman, and the U.S. Embassy had no connection with the Jerusalem consulate. So the State Department could implement an independent policy directly with the Palestinian Authority. That now has changed since the president has moved the U.S. Embassy to 
to Jerusalem. The U.S. Consular General in Jerusalem must now report to Ambassador Friedman and not directly to the State Department. This is welcome news uh, that the president and his administration has taken steps to no longer tolerate the Palestinian anti-Israel propaganda by closing the Jerusalem consulate. That's a quote from the chairman of the Liberty Council and president of Christians in Defense of Israel, Matt Staber. He went on to say the Palestinian Authority does not recognize Israel's right to exist and has no interest in peace. It is appropriate that the Palestinian Authority must now be accountable and directly report to U.S. Ambassador to Israel, Friedman. Uh, Staver went on to say, again, that announcement being uh, just made. And Eugene Peterson has completed his long obedience in the same direction. Hmm. The Presbyterian pastor, best known for authoring the Message Bible, Transliteration, died yesterday at age 85, a week after entering hospice care for complications related to heart failure and dementia. Author Wynn Collier first shared the news on Twitter, saying, My dear friend and pastor Eugene Peterson has died this morning. He said, The lantern is out, but the joy he carried with him in his final breath endures. Eugene is now with the triune God he has loved his entire life. Memory eternal. Nav Press, publisher of The Message, confirmed his death and his family released a statement on his final joyful days, Earthside, writing, During the previous days, it was apparent that he was navigating the thin and sacred space between Earth and Heaven. They wrote, We overheard him speaking to people uh, we can only presume were welcoming him into paradise. There may have been uh, a time or two when he uh, accessed his Pentecostal roots and spoken tongues as well. Among his final words were, let's go, and his joy, my oh my, the man remained joyful right up to his blessed end, smiling frequently. rather. In such moments, it's best for all mortal uh, flesh to keep silent. Uh, But if you have, have to say something, say this. Holy, holy, holy. Well, Eric Peterson had posted about his father's status a week before describing his sudden and dramatic turn and their decision to offer palliative care for his remaining days, which were literally only a few. It feels fitting that this uh, that his death came on a Monday, the day of the week he always honored as a Sabbath during his years as a pastor, the family said. After a lifetime of faithful service in the church, running the race with gusto, it is reassuring to know that Eugene has now entered into the fullness of the kingdom of God and has been embraced by eternal Sabbath at rest. Peterson's Bible paraphrase and writings on spirituality inspired evangelical leaders and laity alike. Christianity Today had described him as a shepherd, uh, a shepherd's shepherd, rather, a pastoral writer who aims to keep Christian leaders grounded in robust biblical theology, aimed uh, rather amid the din of shallow preaching, a uh, aimed at self-improvement and megachurch marketing campaigns to do more, end quote. He was the author of more than 30 books, including the best-selling A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, where he explored discipleship and perseverance in the Christian life. Resurrection does not have to do exclusively with what happens after we are buried or cremated. It does have to do with that. But first of all, it has to do with the way we live right now, he wrote in his 2012 memoir, The Pastor. But as Karl Barth, quoting Nietzsche, Uh, Nietzsche um, pithily reminds us only where graves are is their resurrection. We practice our death by giving up our will to live on our own terms. Only in that relinquishment or renunciation are we able to practice resurrection, end quote. Well, his influence among the church extended long after his nearly 30-year tenure as pastor of Christ our King Presbyterian Church in Bel Air, Maryland. The pastor's popularity famously reached uh, to U2 frontman Bono, and the two appeared in a film about the psalm uh, in 2012.
2016. I discovered Eugene Peterson's The Message through the Psalms, Bono uh, had said in the dressing room before a show. We would read them as a band, then walk out onto the uh, stage of arenas and stadiums, the words igniting us, inspiring us. Well, Peterson raised in the Pentecostal Church and ordained as a Presbyterian uh, minister, taught at Regent College and held degrees from Seattle Pacific, New York Theological Seminary and Johns Hopkins University. In their statement, Peterson's family thanked supporters for their prayers during the pastor's final days. They planned to live stream his funeral to be held at First Presbyterian Church in Montana, but have not yet set the date. With full and overflowing hearts, we give thanks for the gift of his life, they said, knowing that his joy is now complete. But always uh, raises the question, are you prepared for the day the Lord calls you home? And I'm grateful for the fact that when he does call us, he doesn't call us into a lonely corridor, but he greets us into his presence at that very moment. Uh, Well done, Eugene Peterson. Well, tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Robert Walgamuth. He is the author of Lies Men Believe and the Truth That Sets Them Free. On Thursday, as I mentioned yesterday on the program, uh, as I'll be um, flying off to India, and we'll tell you more about that tomorrow, uh, my first guest host will be Dr. Gary Bershears. He's a professor of theology at Western, and he's uh, going to take the reins on uh, on Thursday. On Friday, we'll share the best of the Georgine Rice Show. And then among the, the lineup of guests uh, that we've already booked, and there are some that are still pending, but these are a guest hosts that we know you'll have the opportunity to hear from. Pastor Greg Allen will join us. Uh, he's the pastor of Bethany Bible Church, also has served as adjunct professor at Multnomah. Uh, Mike Lee, who's the director of local ministries here at KPDQ, will take a slot. Dr. Michelle Watson, she's an author. She's the host of The Dad Whisperer. She will also be filling in on one of the days of my absence. And by the way, that will stretch over two weeks. Uh, James... Yeah, James Blend and Justin, our operations director, along with a special guest, and I have it on good authority, that special guest happens to be a comedian. They're going to take the reins of the program, and I think you'll really enjoy what they, uh, what this uh, trio has to offer. Ronna Mall, who is the executive director of Transitional Youth, she'll also be filling in as a guest host. She's a woman I have great admiration for, and I think you'll uh, know why once you have the opportunity to spend a couple hours uh, with her. And then James is going to provide some election coverage with a variety of guests that will include but won't be limited to Jason Williams. Uh, so I'm, I'm grateful that uh, you'll be able to follow what has happened with James Blend and others uh, providing some election coverage. Joe Anfuso, who is the director of Forward Edge, he'll be filling in for me on one of the days of my absence um, in this next couple of weeks. And finally, Clark Tanner, who's currently the regional director of Pastor Serve, but uh, of course served as the senior pastor at Beaverton Christian for a number of years. He'll be filling in as well. And I think we're still working on a couple of other possibilities, uh, which uh, James will let you know. You can check out the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page or kpdq.com and look for the uh, Georgine Rice Show. And there you can learn more about uh, who's hosting, what's coming up, and so on. James is going to take care of that in uh, in my absence. So again, we'll be traveling uh, with a ministry to India. And while I'm not at liberty to provide all of the details, I need to check and make sure what uh, what I'm free to talk about at this point before tomorrow's program, and we'll share as much as possible. But I would certainly appreciate your prayers. I'll be flying out of PDX uh, on Thursday, and we'll be returning on November the 9th. So that's about 14 days. And of course, there's always uh, traveling mercies that we pray for and uh, productive ministry uh, in the interim. So 
Uh, again, I'll check with uh, folks I'm traveling with to make sure I can share more details and will share as much as possible. I think I'll be free to uh, provide a greater detail when I've returned, uh, but we'll explain all of that a bit later. All right. I want to thank James Blind for engineering and producing today's program, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at four for more critical thinking for critical times on ninety three point nine KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.